Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa, everyone. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 433. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, it is Science News. It's the end of the month, and we have Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we've got a big old writer there, now in the nicest possible terms. We've got a story by Ken McLeod. The entire immense superstructure and installation, which was originally published in Reach for Infinity, edited by Jonathan Strand. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Before we get into the kind of, like you say, the main show, a little pat on the back for myself there. We did, as as you know, probably we launched the first, or I launched the first Your Remarkable Adventure. So that's now off and running. If you pop over the website, Josh has kindly put a logo on there, any of the web, three websites. And this week, if, if you're in, man, there's so many wacky people doing, I mean, not wacky, people just everyday people just doing the most amazing adventures, do you know? This week you can hear Will Shue and Charles Stevens, just, I think, 18 and 19-year-old, and they're going to cycle from Beijing to Tehran, capital of Iran. Wow, man, do you know what I mean? But oh, it just gets you excited. And there's this, there's this seed planted in me for doing so. It's like, no, man, how weird, man, Tony. Past it, but then you can, then that's what's that's what's something something does happen every year. It involves a car, and it involves travelling from one side of the world to the other. And I'm like, Melanie, should we do that anyway? <laughs> Sit down, tone. So let's get into the main show. Then you see, first up, the end of the month, it is Mr. JJ Campanella, Jim Sir. Greetings and salacious barrow vocations, my wintraciously trombaric listeners, and welcome to this April 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this just plain trivial science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. <sighs> I'm in no mood to be charming tonight. This has been a very tiresome month. I have a feeling few would ever label me as charming anyway. So let's just get on with the first story of the evening. I think despite my lack of charming tonight, you'll appreciate that we do have some doozies of stories tonight. Doozy stories? Doozy... whatever. Okay, let's just get on with this. So the first story of the night simply proves that even when you win, you generally don't win. 
This is a very disturbing story because anyone who follows this podcast know I have been discussing this topic literally for years now. As you long-time listeners may remember, bisphenol A, BPA, is a chemical, a plastics ingredient that is generally recognized as an endocrine disruptor. I have voiced concerns over its potential impact on human health for years. My voice and many others have prompted manufacturers to eliminate it from some consumer products. A few nations, including Canada and France, have even gone as far as to ban BPA completely from food packaging altogether. Recently, I have begun to discover that BPA-free on packaging does not necessarily mean free of all bisphenols. And as a pair of recent studies show that I came across, substitutes for BPA affect cells and animals in much the same way that bisphenol A does or did. Of course, this is completely frustrating and angering. It's hard to get a handle on all the chemicals present in plastic products, but at least some BPA-free items contain, well, a BPA analog, such as bisphenol S or bisphenol F, BPS or BPF. These are replacements for the hardening agent BPA in plastic. How dangerous are these analogs compared to BPA? Well, Dr. Pascal Coumelieu of the University of Rennes in France and his colleagues measured the effects of four bisphenols on the brains of zebrafish. This was published last month, in March, in Frontiers in Neuroscience. Coumelieu found that three of four BPA analogs, BPAS, BPAF, and BPAF, are estrogenic, and they cause an upregulation in the brain of the enzyme aromatase. Now, aromatase converts androgens into estrogens, so in other words, male hormones into female hormones. Overall, these chemicals are similar to BPA in their effects on zebrafish. Kobalu's group did not follow the fish's development long-term, but he said, quote, If you affect the right balance of these hormones, we can speculate that there will be some problems, such as during the development of sexual differences in the brain. Boosting estrogen levels, for instance, can blunt the normal masculinization of the brain that occurs in males during development, unquote. Ah, but it's not just the brain. The physical body is affected as well. Dr. Ella Atlas of Health Canada published another study in March in the journal Endocrinology that looked at the influence of BPS on fat production. Exposing cell precursors from women to BPA and BPS chemicals led the cells to accumulate lipids and increase the levels of transcripts, RNA transcripts, indicative of differentiation into fat cells. Her experiments suggested that BPS acts through a fatty acid receptor called PPAR, which controls fat cell development. A number of environmental chemicals have been suspected of being obesogens, love that word, meaning that they cause weight gain and also activate PPAR. Yeah, all the problems that the West has with obesity may come down to our bad choices in packaging. Atlas said, quote, it's impossible to extrapolate from my study how BPS affects people, 
and whether it causes fat production in humans in vivo. But it's basically raising a flag that it may be a problem, unquote. So, BPA bad, but its analogs of BPF and BPS may be just as bad. They may be making us fat and full of estrogens. Come on, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to fix this problem. Let's start a campaign to get rid of all bisphenol compounds and plastics altogether before it's too late. How long must this go on before we finally fix it? <sighs> yeah, like I said, a long month. I love the next story. What it mainly tells me is, is that people are ingenious. And the more dishonest people are, the more ingenious they seem to be. This is a science sort of story from the journal Lab Manager. Dr. Mohammed Al-Farouk, director of UCI's Advanced Integrated Cyperphysical Systems Lab, showed that a device as ordinary as a smartphone can be placed next to a 3D printer machine and capture acoustic signals that carry information about the precise movements of the printer's nozzle. So what, you ask? Who cares if you are recording a printer head? Well, here's the thing. What Farouk discovered is, is that these recordings can be used to reverse engineer the three-dimensional object being printed and recreate it. It's a completely new kind of cyber attack, and it presents significant security risks to the industry. Al-Farouk says, quote, In manufacturing plants, people who work on a shift basis don't get monitored for their smartphones. If process and product information is stolen during the prototyping phases, companies stand to incur large financial losses. There's no way to protect these systems from such an attack, but possibly there will be in the future, unquote. Al-Farouk's team achieved nearly 90% accuracy using the sound copying process to duplicate a key-shaped object in his lab. So he does indeed know what he's talking about. Al-Farouk says, quote, State-of-the-art 3D printing systems convert digital information embedded in source code to build layer upon layer of material until a solid object takes shape. A source file can be protected from cyber thievery with strong encryption. But once the creation process has begun, the printer emits sounds that can give up the secrets buried in the software. My group stumbled upon this finding as we were doing work to try to understand the relationship between information and energy flow. According to the fundamental laws of physics, energy is not consumed. It's converted from one form to another, electromagnetic to kinetic, for example. Some forms of energy are translated in meaningful and useful ways. Other just become emissions, which may unintentionally disclose secret information, unquote. What does Al-Farouk suggest to fix this future horror of 3D cyberspying that will soon be visited upon us? Well, he says that engineers should begin to think about ways to jam the acoustic signals emanating from 3D printers, possibly via a white noise device to introduce intentional acoustic randomness or by deploying algorithmic solutions. At a minimum, he says, a fundamental precaution should be to prevent people from carrying smartphones near the rapid prototyping areas when sensitive objects are being printed. Okay, all of that makes sense. I don't have a 3D printer yet, so I'm not really worried about spies out there. However, 
What about the next atrocious step? Huh? Huh? What about my inkjet printer? Is nobody worried about recording the sound off that? I've got students who would dearly love to get a recording of my printing of uh, my latest exams. Time to get Dr. Al-Farouk's white noise device, I guess. Oh, well. Next story. I remember when I took physics and chemistry a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. One of the absolute rules was you always have to have protons present in the nucleus. You can live with no electrons, but the presence of a proton sort of defines the nucleus itself. No proton, no nucleus. Well, it's taken a while, but some physicists finally broke that rule. They've created a nucleus that has no protons. The story came out in February uh, in the issue of the journal Physical Review Letters, and it came out of the lab of Dr. Kisamori of the University of Tokyo. If it's confirmed by further experiments, this tetra-neutron would be the first example of an uncharged nucleus, something that many theorists say should simply not exist. It's already causing a sensation among physicists. The Japanese researchers spotted the signature of tetra-neutrons after firing a beam of neutron-rich helium nuclei, two protons, six neutrons, at a liquid composed of the most common form of helium, which is two protons and two neutrons. Occasionally, the reaction produced beryllium nuclei with four protons and four neutrons, leaving four neutrons missing in action. Although the scientists could not see the other product directly, its properties fit the description of a clumped neutron quartet, as they call it. The four neutron nuclei lasted about a billionth of a trillionth of a second before decaying into something else. The physics community has made it clear that they will need to see more detections before agreeing that tetraneutrons exist. I guess I understand what their worry is. A lot of these results make no sense. If these tetraneutrons exist, then they are seriously puzzling because neutrons should not cluster in a nucleus unless there are protons there. There's nothing to hold them together. Remember, a neutron has no charge on it. I'm sure they won't like it, but nuclear theorists will probably have to propose some kind of new nuclear force to explain this really weird nucleus. I mean, how else are you going to explain it otherwise? Well, I don't know. I'm a biologist. What do I know? But that seems to me to be fairly apparent. Okay. Next story. Male mice without Y chromosomes. The horror. Once again, a story that suggests that we can do away with males and their stinky Y chromosomes. Who needs them Y chromosomes when we can make males without them, after all? Well, as it turns out, it's not quite that easy. Reproductive biologist Dr. Monica Ward of the University of Hawaii in Honolulu and colleagues started with mice that have only one X chromosome and no Y chromosome, and normally those mice would develop as females. But as Ward reports in Science last month, it did not quite turn out that way. At first, when I read the story, I was amazed. That is, until I realized that Ward's group was taking advantage of a developmental pathway has been characterized for at least the last 10 years in humans. To put it simply, the Y chromosome triggers the process of male development. 
Oddly enough, there is a pathway in the non-sex chromosomes that completes male development. Two Y chromosome genes, called SRY and EIF2S3Y, are crucial for male mouse development. SRY is a master gene that turns on male developmental programming in early embryos. It turns on a gene called SOX9, which then sets off a chemical chain reaction that leads to male development. The EIF gene is important for something else, as we'll see in a second. Basically, Ward short-circuited the system by taking out the SRY gene from the equation. She turned on SOX9 through other means. Activating SOX9 in a genetically female embryo will cause it to develop as male. But again, this has been known for a while because of genetic developmental anomalies that have been studied for quite a while over the last couple of decades. So Ward made males from females. But there was something crucial missing. Her XX males didn't make sperm. Their testes were essentially empty. Why? Remember I said that the EIF gene was important. Well, Y chromosomes are important for two reasons in terms of their function. One, the obvious one, is to induce male development. But the other reason is that you need the Y chromosome to make normal sperm. The EIF gene is one of the genes needed to make normal sperm. No EIF gene, no normal sperm. Ward tried to fix this by putting a copy of EIF on the X chromosome of their female. And it kind of worked. Only one copy of EIF on the X made immature tailless sperm. She discovered it took up to five copies of the X version of EIF to do the same thing as one copy on the Y chromosome. Ward concluded with this, quote, Our data indicates that the Y chromosome gene EIF2S3Y is a strong one. Some researchers have suggested that the Y chromosome is doomed and will eventually be lost. Our work does not support that the Y chromosome will disappear. On the contrary, it is very important for both development and sperm production, unquote. Oh, so there, Y chromosome haters. Not going to get rid of it very soon, hater dudes, are yo? Next story. Another astronomic world record for the biggest rocky exoplanet yet discovered. Dr. Nestor Espinosa, an astrophysicist at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile, reported the story January 28th online at the journal archive.org. When it comes to big balls of rock, exoplanet, BD20594b might have all the other known worlds beat. At roughly half the diameter of Jupiter, BD is a hundred percent rock. Kind of like the heads of some of the U.S.'s presidential candidates at the moment. Espinosa said, quote, This planet defies calculation and all our previous conceptions of what large planets should look like. It is a complete mystery. A planet this large should be gassy, unquote. BD20594b sits about 500 light years away in the constellation Taurus. The planet is about 16 times as massive as Earth, but just a little over twice as wide, making its density about 8 grams per cubic centimeter. 
Earth's density, by comparison, is about 5.5 grams per cubic centimeter. This planet was discovered in 2015 with the Kepler Space Telescope, which looks for silhouettes of planets passing in front of stars. Neither Espinosa nor any other astronomer can explain how a solid planet this big can exist. But let me tell you, according to every old SF story I ever read as a kid, I would never want to meet up with a native of this BD planet, if there are any. A heavy gravity world like that would produce natives who are squat, wide, and literally as strong as elephants. Not very pleasant to come across in a dark alley down here. Next story. More environmental toxins and potential woes. For three decades now, doctors have prescribed more and more Prozac, Fluoxetine, for organic depression. And it has probably helped millions of people to stay sane. One of the problems with all these people taking Prozac is that the drug is not completely broken down by the body. And what isn't broken down is urinated out. So for the last 15 years, we have seen an increase in the amount of background Prozac, both in drinking water as well as the water of rivers and lakes out there. Yes, it is in minuscule quantities, but it is increasing yearly. Dr. Teresa Zuakzinski and colleagues from the University of New England noted that the drug is turning up in our river systems. Thanks to its resistance to breakdown, it now seems to be affecting the behavior of aquatic residents, reducing aggression and risk-taking, and affecting how often animals feed. This is very bad news for our ecosystems. Zuakzinski findings for the effects of Prozac on fish behavior were published in last month's Journal of Experimental Biology. She decided she wanted to find out how male Siamese fighting fish that had not been exposed to fluoxetine and those that had experienced a week-long low or high dosage responded to situations that were designed to challenge their courage and how their reactions changed over time. Right from the start, it was clear that the fish that had not been exposed to fluoxetine were much keener to explore a novel empty tank than the fish that had been swimming in water laced with antidepressant, and the fish that had received the highest dosage were the most timid. However, the fish that had been exposed to half a microgram per liter of the drug were bolder on some occasions than others, and when the team tested the fish's reaction to an unfamiliar tank furnished with intriguing stones and plants, or the presence of a shoal of lady Siamese fighting fish, the two sets of drug males were equally disinterested in exploring. The strength of the drug apparently did not affect them differently. Zuakzinski said, quote, Perhaps most importantly and alarmingly, the effects of exposure lasted even after Prozac was removed. Even brief periods of exposure could potentially produce chronic effects, especially as boldness is important in migration, aggression, and predator evasion, unquote. This is not good news. Now not only are we giving male sea creatures increased levels of estrogen with bisphenol compounds, but messing with their inherent maleness by giving them Prozac. Of course, global warming is not exactly helping. 
Frankly, I will be amazed if any ecosystem in the world is going to survive the next 50 years at the rate that we are sabotaging ourselves. Sorry, I don't mean to be such a worrywart, but it's just pathetic that we are doing our planet in this way. Last story of the night. When is randomness no longer random? Well, apparently when you're looking at prime numbers. Mathematicians, doctors, Kanan Sundararahan and Robert Lemke Oliver of Stanford University stunned themselves last month by discovering a pattern in prime numbers. Apparently this is not something that anyone ever expected. If you remember your grade school math, prime numbers are those that are divisible only by themselves in one. But they are also the building blocks of all other numbers which are created by multiplying primes together. Clearly, prime numbers are fundamental to arithmetic, and this is why mathematicians are constantly trying to decipher their mysteries. Mathematicians have no way of predicting which numbers are prime, so they have been treated as if they occur randomly. Sundara Rashan said, quote, It is very weird. It's like some painting you are familiar with, and then suddenly you realize there's a figure in the painting you've never seen before, unquote. So what they find? Aside from 2 and 5, all prime numbers end in 1, 3, 7, or 9, since they can't be divided by 2 or 5. If the numbers occurred randomly, as expected by mathematicians, it shouldn't matter what the last digit of the previous prime was, since each of the four possibilities should have a 25% chance of appearing at the end of the next prime number. It turns out that's not what's happening. While searching through the first hundred million primes, the two mathematicians noticed that primes ending in one were followed by another one ending in one just 18.5% of the time, something that would not happen if the primes were truly random. Worse yet, primes ending in three and seven each followed one a whopping 30% of the time while 9 followed 1 about 22% of the time. The patterns become more random as you count higher. The team actually developed a computer program to search through the first 400 billion primes, but the pattern still persisted. So where does this pattern come from? Sundararajan and Oliver think that they have an explanation which they call the K-tuple conjecture. This conjecture was developed by mathematicians from the University of Cambridge in the early 20th century as a way of estimating how often pairs, triples, and larger groups of primes appear. Using the K-tuple conjecture, the team showed that the groupings given by the conjecture were responsible for the last-digit pattern. However, they also found that as the primes stretched to infinity, they completely lost the pattern and followed the random distribution mathematicians are used to expecting. Uh, okay, I don't entirely understand that, but then again, that's why I did not become a mathematician. Soon Dararajan finishes by saying, quote, We do not think this discovery will have any immediate implications in the world of mathematics, but it has left some mathematicians a little shaken. It gives us more of an understanding of primes, and every little bit helps. What worries us, though, is if what you take for granted is wrong, 
that makes you rethink some of the other things you know. It turns out that you should be very careful when you make assumptions, even when everyone agrees with those assumptions, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Support that ban on bisphenols from plastics. Remember, the Y chromosome is still relevant. Don't let anyone record your printer. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. I thank you. Jim, always a pleasure. My sir, always a pleasure. So the main fiction, like I said, by Ken McLeod, no less, originally published in Reach, Reach for the Infinity, edited by Jonathan Strand. The entire immense superstructure and installation. Give you a heads up about Ken. Ken McLeod was born in Stoneway and lives in West Lothian. He has honours and master's degrees in biological subjects and worked for some years in the IT industry. Since 1997, he's been a full-time writer. He is the author of 14 novels, from The Star Fraction, which came out in 1995, to Descent, which came out in Orbit, 2014. Just oodles of articles and short stories. His novels and stories received three British Science Fiction Awards and three Prometheus Awards. Several have been shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke and the Hugo Awards. He's currently working on a space opera trilogy, The Corporation Wars, which is forthcoming in 2016-2017. Now this story we're about to hear and a couple others is going to be featured in a small ebook published by Italian Future Fiction and there's a link under there if you want to pop over and just have a little little gander at that this story is narrated by Cheyenne White Cheyenne is a freelance illustrator and concept artist he is the colour artist of three time Hugo award winning steampunk graphic novel series Girl Genius and the co-creator of many other fine works including 50 Fathoms and the Eerie, an award-winning Deadlands Noir for the Savage Worlds role-playing game. He has also produced graphics for Star Trek Online, the Champions MMO, and T-shirt designs for TV's Alton Brown. Cheyenne lives in Seattle with his wife and their daughter. In his spare time, he's teaching himself animation and narrates short stories for a variety, should I say, of audio anthologies where he's known as Podcasting's Mr. Buttery, Man Voice. That's trademarked. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Entire Immense Superstructure An Installation By Ken McLeod 1. Daylight Passes Verrill, you'll recall, spent only six months in Antarctica and shortly after his return had to be talked down from the canopy of Herod's, where he seemed on the point of committing spoku with what turned out to be a laser pointer. At the hearing, he claimed to have been making an artistic statement. He opted for the psychiatric treatment rather than face charges. I visited him at the clinic, a sprawling conference center-style low build on a three-hundred-acre expanse of lawns, copses, and lakes, outside a small town in Bedfordshire. We walked along the gravel path, slowly, three of his toes, frostbitten after an ill-considered escapade on the brunt ice shelf, were still regenerating. A minder hovered discreetly, at head level, 
and a few paces to the side, its rotors now and then disturbing the tops of the taller plants in the beds along the path. Verrill was silent for a while, his fists jammed in the pockets of an unfastened white toweling robe he wore over jeans and t-shirt. From a distance, he might have looked more like a clinician or technician than a patient. His beard, pressed to his collarbone, his shoulders almost touching the angles of his jaw, one foot dragging, perhaps these would have been clues to his real status. Jesus was living as a human socialist, he announced. You could hear the quotes, the portent in his voice. What? Last night, I dreamt I read that, on the front cover of a celebrity gossip magazine. In the midst of all the usual stuff about who's getting married and who's been seen out with whom, who's split up, and what diet she's on, etc. What was the evidence? I've never read that kind of magazine in reality, let alone in dreams. Have you been thinking a lot about Jesus? Beryl shook his head. Mm, not since his death. Ah. Suddenly he grabbed my arm. The minder lurched towards him as he pointed upward, about a quarter of the way up the sky. Look, a light moved in the blue, arcing slowly to vanish behind a cloud. The Shenzhou Hotel, Beryl said. I could see that. Yes, so? I don't have my contacts, he said. He jerked his head back, indicating the clinic. They take them out, you know. So I'm memorizing everything. Orbit times, timetables, tide tables, phases of the moon, phases of the famous, locations of police stations, railway stations. Space stations. There goes another. The Putlov engine works. It was, of course, nothing of the kind. Virgin honeymoons, I said. Uh-huh. Just testing. He gave me a look like a nudge. At Halley, we could only see the circumpolar ones, and of these, only one or two are visible in daylight. In the Antarctic night, well, yeah, it's quite something to see an orbital hotel climbing out of the aurora. He closed his eyes and shook his head. Remembering. You know, it was then, in the long night, that I realized we all believed the cliché about Antarctica being the front line of the Cold Revolution. Ha! His pointing finger tracked another daylight pass. The real front line is up there. LEO and geostationary. The moon. The Earth grazer robot mines. The foothold on Mars. The stations farther out. That's where the battle for the future is being fought. But it was the daylight passes in my last month that got to me. I've heard this sort of thing before, and I've heard enough. Vero was not insane, his odd meanderings about Jesus notwithstanding. These I put down to an attempt to convince me, or the clinic, via the minder, otherwise. Or, quite possibly, another exercise in performance art. That reminds me, I said, by way of changing the subject. Do you wish to continue your residency? I'm not in Antarctica anymore. It was like he was pointing something out. No, I said patiently. But the survey gave you a grant for a year. While we expected you to stay down there for the whole twelve months, it isn't actually specified in your contract. All we need is evidence that you are engaged in producing some work inspired by your stay. Well, you have that already, he said. We have. 
the Knightsbridge incident. <laughs> I had to laugh. If you can justify it artistically to the committee, well... We continued our stroll and chat, amicably and circuitously all the way back to the clinic's front door. I shook hands and said goodbye, and watched as he shuffled inside through the glass doors. He didn't look back. A passing waiter had an extra espresso on its tray. I let the drink cool as I sauntered down the drive to the road. As I waited to be picked up, I sipped the coffee and thought over what I should report, then crushed the empty cup and chucked it into a bin that trundled past at that moment. After a minute, a car pulled in and drew to a halt. The window sank into the door. Cambridge? the driver asked. Perfect, I said. She jerked her thumb over her shoulder. Hop in. On the way home, I filed my assessment of Pharaoh's mental state and recommended that he be kept under observation. Number two. Observation. Pharaoh wandered past reception and into the clinic's small shop, where he bought a paper A5-line spiral-bound notebook and a black gel pen. He stuffed these in the pocket of his toweling robe and walked along two long corridors to his room. The door opened to his palm. The room was basic hotel, bed, table, chair, kettle, wardrobe, ensuite. The window gave a view across the car park and the estate to the nearby fields and woods, straddled by the local modules of the wiki thing. Verrill boiled the kettle and made herbal teabag tea. He sat down at the desk and looked at the room's two cameras one by one. He shifted the chair around and placed the notebook on his crooked knee and the pen on the table. He picked up the pen and began to write, sipping the tea occasionally. What he wrote was not in the camera's field of view. After nineteen minutes, he turned to a fresh page and stood up in front of the window. There he began to sketch the visible modules of the wiki thing, quickly and crudely, making no effort to get the angles of the tubes or the shading of the spheres right. The result looked like a child's drawing of the pieces in a giant's game of jacks. The modules carelessly connected like enchained molecules. The drawing was further marred by lines drawn in the wrong places and ignored or scribbled over. He stared at the page, made a few more marks on it with greater care and less skill, signed it, then tore out the sketch and the written pages and slid them into a hotel envelope on which he scrawled a line. He looked directly at the camera. You wanted evidence of work, he said. He looked around the room, then took off his toweling robe and tossed it on the bed. He opened the wardrobe, put on a thick shirt and padded jacket, and socks and boots. As he stood up in the boots, he winced slightly, then adjusted the lacing of the boot on his damaged foot. He hauled a small rucksack out of the bottom of the wardrobe and stuffed the rest of his gear in it, and slipped the pen and notebook into an inside pocket of the jacket. The door closed behind him. A minute and a half later he appeared at the reception desk. I'm checking out, he said. Do you mean you are discharging yourself, said the desk. Yes, said Verrill. Only non-interactive property can be returned to you, said the desk. I'm aware of that. Thanks. You are not recommended to discharge yourself. I know. By discharging yourself, said the desk, 
You discharge the clinic of all responsibility. Good, said Verrill. After some seconds a minder emerged from behind the reception area and laid a transparent ziplock bag on the desk. Verrill sorted a torch, pen, watch, laser pointer, Victorinox knife, and a wallet containing only paper currency into various pockets. He left two crumpled tissues and a half-finished tube of minted sweets in the bag. Please place discarded items in the recycling bin, said the desk. Verrill complied. You may return at any time, said the desk. I don't intend to. We hope you had a pleasant and recuperative stay, and that you would recommend the clinic to others. No doubt I will have occasion to, said Verrill. Please sign here, said the desk, lighting a patch. Verrill scribbled on the patch and shouldered his pack and walked out. A minder drifted after him. His torn-out notebook pages arrived on my desk the following week, in a tattered envelope addressed to That Guy Wilson from the Antarctic Survey. It had been to Cardiff, where I had an ex-girlfriend known to one of the clinic's staff, and Bristol before arriving in Cambridge. There are times when I miss the postal service. Number 3. The Wikipedia of Things Originating in a poorly documented, hastily conceived application of synthetic biology and genetic engineering to post-disaster emergency shelter and supply in the flood world seized on and mutated by criminal gangs and militias, replicating uncontrollably like some benign invasive weed, becoming a refuge for the displaced surplus population and marginal individuals everywhere and finally reconfigured by biohackers, inspired by the situationist architecture of constant New Huinhue's projected Luddic social space of New Babylon, a borderless, global, and polymorphic artificial modular milieu, intended as the site of a freedom that, for us, is not the choice between many alternatives, but the optimum development of the creative faculties of every human being. The Wikipedia of Things insinuates itself across and through all previously existing environments in an era of universal surveillance where social control is directly experienced as quasi-divine providential good fortune, a perpetual and relentless reinforcement of the double-edged conviction that one is lucky to be alive and where all ideological concentration is instantly recuperable, the wiki thing's sheer materiality constitutes a critique made unanswerable by its silence. It is time to make the silent modules speak, and for the very ground to rise up. Number 4. Interim Appraisal There was a lot more like that. Mary Jones, the ex-colonel who then chaired the Arts and Public Engagement Committee of the British Antarctic Survey, read through the three pages of bad handwriting, and studied for a few seconds the disgraceful draughtsmanship of the sketch. She threw the notebook pages down on her desk. Bastards off his meds. Off his meds. Off paste. Off the reservation. And off providence. I said. She looked startled. Off providence? Oh, yes, I said. Patients have to turn in their contacts when they're admitted to the clinic. He self-discharged, so he didn't get them back. She blinked rapidly. 
Good Lord, how did he expect to survive? He told me he was memorizing timetables. Timetables? You know, for trains. Trains? She shook her head. Fucking delusional. And tide tables. Whatever floats your boat, I guess. We laughed. But seriously, I said, I think that was just a misdirection. He also claimed to be able to identify orbital structures from eye and memory, and immediately demonstrated that he didn't. No, I think, well, that screed of his suggests, he's been intending to go into the wiki thing for some time. And, like I said, I don't think he's insane in the least. He's not exactly feigning insanity, either. As far as he's concerned, he's still engaged in the Antarctic art project. How about as far as we're concerned? I shrugged. There's not much we can do about it. Whenever he emerges from the wiki thing, he'll still be living off the grant. How can he do that without contacts? He took it all out in cash. He has a wad of paper in his back pocket. Jones frowned. Good luck with that. Do we have any idea where he is? A minder followed him into the wiki thing, but it got eaten within seconds. Okay, she said. She stood up and stepped over to the window, gazing out at the motorway in the fields, and pointed to the inevitable strand of the wiki thing in the distance. For all we know, he could even be in there right now. Just a couple of clicks away, she sighed. It's frustrating. And then she turned around sharply. All right, let's take him at his word for the moment. He's being irritating and irresponsible. What do you expect? He's an artist. Yes, I said, relieved. But, she added, wrapping the air with an outstretched forefinger, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. We don't expect our artists to churn out rabid propaganda, but we do at least expect them to produce something visible and inspiring, however avant-garde it might be. Before she retired from the army and took her post at the survey, Jones had spent most of her twenty-year service career in the semiotics division, some of it on the front line. The Coca-Cola Comet stunt, rumor has it, was her idea. So this, she picked up and dropped the pages Verrill had sent, doesn't meet the criteria. I want to see something more substantial, and before too long at that. I'm sure you will, I said. He's a very serious artist, after all. So you keep telling us, she said. The next communication from Verrill arrived three months later, correctly addressed, air-mailed quaintly enough blue envelope and all, and postmarked Malabo, Isla de Baico, the capital of Equatorial Guinea, on the island formerly known as Fernando Po. The thirty sheets of thin paper inside were typed on both sides, single-spaced, using a mechanical typewriter. I pass over viral salutations and preliminary personal discourtes, and present an extract from, and then summary of, his narrative, with no claims as to its veracity, other than to suggest that it gives as good an explanation of subsequent events as we have yet seen. Number 5. Out of the Hands of Providence My left foot hurt like fuck, Beryl wrote, but I was damned if I was going to let it show. I strode across the car park and the putting green, ignoring shouts through and partially over a hedge and into the field. I could hear the buzz of the minder steady two meters behind me, an unbelievably annoying sound and situation. 
like being tailgated by a bee. Ignoring it and not looking back, quailing inwardly, I approached the wicky thing. Soggy autumn grass squelched under my boot. The nearer sphere resting on the ground had an aperture about two meters wide, a meter off the ground. Light pulsed behind the shifting rainbow sheen as if a soap bubble were stretched across the entrance. I climbed in. As I passed through the elliptical portal, the bubble burst. The spray stung my face and the back of my hands for an instant. Then, as a backward glance showed, the sheen reformed behind me. Inside, banally, the bottom of the sphere was filled with soil and covered with green grass, springy as well as spring-like. The rest of the sphere was transparent from the inside, though from the outside it had been merely translucent. The adjoining cylinder, likewise transparent, sloped gently upward. Just as I turned towards it, the bubble over the doorway popped again, and the minder came in. The bubble barely had time to reconstitute itself before something leapt from the grass and grappled with the minder in midair. The added weight brought the tiny machine to the ground in a screeching complaint of rotors. After a few moments of thrashing the new device, a sort of mechanical spider was using four of its appendages to dismantle the minder and another four to scuttle away. It vanished into the grass. Down a burrow, I guessed. Not hanging around to investigate, I set off up the sloping cylinder. It was a good three meters in diameter and floored with what felt like roughened plastic ridges underfoot. As I ascended, I found the air becoming warm and its scent pleasant. The next sphere, well off the ground, was a kind of greenhouse, twined with creepers that seemed to sustain some hydroponic piping, from which sprouted small fruit-bearing plants, none of which were remotely familiar, in various stages of ripeness. I had no way of determining whether they were safe to eat, and I was not hungry enough to take the risk, so I hurried on. Thereafter, my progress became easier. The angular arrangement of the spheres and the tubes near the clinic were replaced by a more uh, tolerable approximation to the horizontal. Each sphere or spheroid in some of the linking tubes was the locale of an entirely different facility. Some were greenhouses. Some were rendered almost impassable with glutinous machinery, from which random articles of use and ornament were extruded. Others appeared to be galleries of visual art and sculpture, in which, I confess, I lingered, though the work of any discernible talent was rare. Occasionally I was faced by alternative exits from a given node. In these cases I struck out in a generally southward course. My wandering had taken me perhaps a dozen kilometers in three hours. The variable light, whether natural or artificial, made the passage of time difficult to ascertain, and I deliberately avoided looking at my watch. When I first heard voices ahead, the apprehension I had felt in my final steps before venturing into the wiki thing returned, redoubled. I had no idea who I might encounter, but with a stern reminder to myself that this was a condition of the wiki thing, and that if I was not willing to face it, I might as well give up my project then and there. I pressed on. On the threshold, I paused. The space in front of me was about the size and shape of a Nesson hut, rounded at the ends. Two long tables occupied its length, about thirty people, all adults of various ages, 
sat around them, drinking and talking. Their clothing was eccentric or exigent. Fumes, fragrant and otherwise, drifted in visible clouds to be whipped away by strong droughts into overhead orifices. Along the sides of the room were shelves in which cartons and cups lay, evidently the sources of the drinks being consumed. A ripple of face-turning raced down the room and rebounded as a wave of indifference, and it returned to the ongoing conversation. I hesitated for a moment. Facing as I did a crowd of people whose identity and background were not just herethro unknown to me, but impossible for me to find at a glance. And I, no doubt, was as unknown and unknowable to them. Nerving myself, I walked into the room to make the first truly chance encounter of my adult life. Number six, a traveler in utopia. The following entirely predictable events are then narrated in Verrill's characteristically prolux style. Finding among the denizens of the room an attractive woman, a little younger than himself, and their conversations with each other and others' presence, in which Vero expresses delight at the discovery of such interesting people and convenial company in a milieu where the cold revolution no longer polarizes every aspect of life, every waking thought, and contaminates our very dreams. Attached sheets three through four. An unnecessarily detailed and salacious account of subsequent sexual activity, sheets five through eight. Verrill's dismay at waking to discover that the woman has vanished like a mist in the morning, like wind on the sea, and that the adjacent venue of the evening's conviviality has been transformed overnight into what appears to be a particularly strenuous gymnasium, but is actually a control unit for an experimental protein-folding laboratory. Sheet 9. Verrill's growing understanding of the mechanisms of the wiki thing, including sewerage, life support, child-rearing practices, gender relations, medical procedures, laser-centering devices, quasi-pheromonal communication networks, and automated internal and external defenses, Sheets 10 through 18. Verrill's increasing frustration with the involution and self-absorption he finds among the wiki-thing inhabitants in their lives of creative play. Sheet 20. His conception of an art project to subvert their complacency. Sheets 20 through 21. His proclamation of and concept designed for New Babel an uninhabited and uninhabitable modular tower to be built on Pico Basil, the highest peak of Isla de Baico, sheets 22 through 25. The pheromonal surge of confidence he feels that his project has propagated through the wiki thing and that thousands of eager volunteers are already making their way to Equatorial Guinea, sheet 26. His meticulous planning of a journey and his departure from the wiki thing near the barely used East Coast Main Line. Sheets 27 through 30. I dropped to the ground, Verrill's account concludes, and walked along the railway track. Whenever a train was due, I took good care to be off the line before it came into sight. Sometimes I clambered onto a slow-moving goods train. By this and other means, 
I reached Tilbury. A container ship was about to leave port, headed for my destination. Timing my movements with great precision from the process chart I had memorized, I climbed up a stack of containers at the quayside and stepped across the adjacent stack on board. Just before the ship sailed, the tide was in, as I had known it would be. Number 7. New Babel Equatorial Guinea was, of course, one of the earliest sites of the WikiThing development. Initially, in the form of humanitarian aid provided by the U.S. Navy, in the course of assistance to the democratic forces, the plains and rainforests of the offshore island on which the capital stands remains littered with the WikiThing modules and shell fragments, as does the country's mainland territory, and many ingenious local adaptations and variations of the WikiThing as well as the expended ordinance, have been and are being evolved. The growth of a spindly spike of WikiThing, eventually reaching a height of one kilometer atop the 3,000-meter summit of the dormant volcano overlooking Malibu, attracted considerable media attention. Needless to say, the Arts and Public Engagement Committee of the British Antarctic Survey followed developments closely and with more anxiety than our responses to journalists' questions betrayed. We were able to assure inquirers that the project, though unauthorized by us, was not objected to by the government of Equatorial Guinea, and that curiosity about it was bringing a much-needed boost to tourist revenue. Some local denizens of the wiki thing, less isolated from their compatriots than their equivalents elsewhere, and therefore infrequent if irregular communication, and technically illicit trade, had been among the earliest to rally to the project. The structure itself was being self-generated from rainforest floor detritus, surplus natural gas siphoned from offshore oil wells, and volcanic debris. I have to admit that the significance of a tall, modular structure with a tough outer skin and an interior consisting of largely silicated cellulose escaped me entirely. No damage to the environment or biodiversity of the island was being reported. We were happy to take some credit, albeit discreetly, for Vero's project, though my increasingly urgent replies to his letter went unanswered. Therefore, it was with as much disappointment as surprise that we watched the events of this February unfold. Many thousands of camera drones aimed by reporters, tourists, agents of Western governments and Asian multiplanetary corporations, and local Equatorial Guinean citizens who had been alerted by street market rumor, were on the spot, mostly at a safe distance, to record and transmit the spectacle. It seemed, at first, that the dormant volcano had begun to erupt. A roar of sound rolled down the sides of the mountain, Smoke and flames boiled from the summit around the base of New Babel. Then, more or less rapidly, the entire immense superstructure began to rise into the sky. One by one, five successive stages fell away, to combust entirely and drift down as, mostly, harmless ash. The modules at the very tip of the spire, as is now confirmed, reached low Earth orbit, where they remain. Whether their avoidance of collision with any other structure in what is admittedly crowded region of near-Earth space 
vindicates Verrill's boast that he had memorized satellite times and orbits, I can only speculate. No communication from the new satellite has been received, other than a persistent and discordant bleep, which is, no doubt, intentionally reminiscent of the first Sputnik. In the months since then, nothing further has been heard from Verrill. Claims have been made that he, with or without some confederates, actually ascended to orbit, where he or they managed to survive for some time, and possibly to this day. The theoretical possibility of a closed-loop solar-powered ecology within a wiki-thing module, even one of that size, does exist. Personally, I think it far more likely that what we witnessed was an uncrewed launch, and that Verrill has once more disappeared into the wiki-thing, where he even now could be hatching a yet more audacious plans, or, knowing him as I do, lost interest in the project and moved on to something else entirely. But sometimes, when the remaining component of New Babel makes a visible pass above the British Isles after sunset, I look up and wonder. Nevertheless, in conclusion, the incident passed off without endangering surface or space shipping, and without incurring additional expense to the survey. I therefore respectfully suggest that we consider the matter closed. There you go. Oh my God. Copyright is Ken McLeod. Thank you. Look back through our history. At, at, you know, like say, early on, you know, I'm sure probably, was it one of the first, definitely in the first 20, I'm sure we had a Ken McLeod story there. So just an awesome writer. And like you say, we've kind of, We've got history together as well, Starship's over in Ken McLeod. Big thank you. And a big thank you to Cheyenne White. Thank you so for a voice, man. Oh, lovely. So that is the show. I hope you have enjoyed it. And I hope you will think about popping over to, you know, remarkable adventures to, to listen to some folks over there that are really doing remarkable adventures. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.